All right, so summary from last time. We're trying to do this every week to take a summary from the week before and then move into our text. So uh, from verses 12 through 26, from the humble beginnings of a small group, group which obediently waits the direction of their king, God will build his kingdom. God is sovereign over everything and victorious over those who oppose him. He destroys all that oppose his anointed and his kingdom. Under the providential selection of God, the 11 select Matthias to complete the 12 once again. Thus, the tribal heads of Israel are reconstituted in preparation uh, for the restoration of Israel by the establishment of true Israel at Pentecost. Okay. So tonight there's going to be a lot of different moving parts, a lot of different moving parts, and I don't expect any one piece of the evidence for the case that I'm going to build to be convincing to you. This was sort of a strange way of thinking when I first moved into the realm of biblical theology. It's like if I were to tell Hayden to draw me a building, and I said, only draw one line. It'd look a little bit like a building, but mostly not at all. But two lines, and then three lines, and then four lines, it starts to fill in that picture. And so what I'm hoping to do here tonight is to provide you sort of what I want to argue for overall as the overarching narrative of this text in Acts. And then we're going to build one line after another in order to hopefully fill in that picture just a little bit. Now, it has been my experience that drawing line after line after line, comparing different texts, tends to lose people. And so I have really fought to try to organize this the best way I can. But if you have questions as we're going through, feel free to shout it out or pull me aside afterwards and we'll walk through it in a little bit more detail. So what is the main argument that I'm going to try to make? This is a quote from uh, Greg Beale here. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost is a description of the inaugurated eschatological descent to earth of the heavenly temple to establish God's end time people as a part of this temple. Really simple, right? Okay. So this is to say that God is going to restore Israel, a people. There's been this prophesied temple. And what I'm going to argue is that that temple is found right here, not in a building, not in a physical structure, but in a group of people that have God's presence in the latter days. Okay? And that is the church at Pentecost and extending to today. So where are we in this narrative? We've obviously come through chapter one. We're kind of plopped here at chapter two. So what's happened? So far, we have seen that Jesus rises from the dead, and then he spends 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God. Jesus is instructing the apostles about the kingdom of God and what they're supposed to do in it. But then Jesus has to leave, right? He's going to head out. But how does he leave? He doesn't leave in just any random way. He ascends a what? What does he go up? What? In a cloud from a mountain, right? So we have a mountaintop experience where Jesus is going up to heaven in the clouds. Then we move into this really transitional text where there's 11 apostles, and then there's this almost strange emphasis on the fact that, okay, Judas has fallen out, but what are we going to do now? We have to fill in this gap. And Peter stands up and makes a speech, and so then we have a clear emphasis on trying to reconstitute 12 apostles, 
And what I've made the case before is that these are representing the 12 tribes of Israel gathered at the foot of the mountain, if you will. And now chapter 2, we're about to go up that mountain and figure out what's happening. This is the moment that we've been building to so far in the book of Acts. So that's what's happened in the past in this text. But now when we come to Acts 2 here, where are we uh, temporospatially? Like where are we physically located in this text? Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, who has Acts 2, 1 through 4? You got it. Uh, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly they came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided, um, but divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, you raised your hand for a question. No, I thought you were asking a question. Oh, okay. No, yes. Okay, perfect. So we are in a house here. If you flip over to the end of the chapter, though, you're going to see that a lot of this is situated in the temple. And so skipping over some of the argument here, but I'm, I'm going to assume that we are in a temple context. The, the church is known for meeting here consistently in the temple or in the house of the Lord, if we look to chapter 2, verse 46. So what's the setting? What is Luke setting for this moment? We are already finding ourselves in a temple. Now that begs the question, what is a temple? It's a really easy question, but it's much more difficult to answer. And so as we move through, I'm going to argue that the early church is a temple. What is a temple? A temple can be defined very simply as where the presence of God meets with mankind. The presence of God meeting with mankind. It's a broad umbrella definition because there's been a lot of different temples, if you will, where God has met with mankind. And I think we see all the hallmarks that this is one of those sections. Now we're going to get into some biblical theology, okay? So we're going to draw some parallels from the Old Testament into this text here in Acts. And so you might want to keep one finger in Acts chapter 2 and then listen to these other texts and see these verbal parallels that we're noting. What I'm going to be saying here is that Luke has been preparing us for this and is now intentionally drawing parallels between Pentecost and, as Vincent called a couple weeks early, Sinai. We've been preparing for this. Pentecost is mirrored to Sinai in Luke's logic here. Thus far, we have Jesus as the greater Moses who ascends to a heavenly temple after 40 days. And now we're arriving at Pentecost, which is 50 days after uh, the, uh, the Passover. So this Pentecost, to, to begin with in Jewish history, would at about 150 AD become associated with Sinai. And so that's a little bit anachronistic to take something in the future and map it back to say that something in 150 AD was known here. But it does go to show that perhaps already in the water, there is this thought that Pentecost is somehow tied with the experience of Israel at Sinai. Now, what we're going to see here in Exodus at Sinai is that wind and fire are typical ways that God shows his presence. 
Sinai has a lot of wind and fire happening. And then we move into Acts chapter 2, and you get, I, I had always found it strange. Why describe it as tongues of divided fire over people's heads? What an odd description. It makes a whole lot more sense if we're thinking of it in this context. That wind and fire of God's presence sat on the top of Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. Exodus 19, 16 through 20. So what do we have here? We have God descending to meet Moses. And how is his presence revealed? God descends in an absolutely consuming fire. Right? This is uh, a way to describe God that is common to the Bible, that God is a consuming fire. Right? And so we have that right there in the text, but Jewish commentary tradition is going to move beyond this. It's going to add things like roaring winds and rushing fire, which when we move, flipping back over here to Acts chapter 2, what do we have? A rush of wind and roaring fire descending on this, uh, this situation in Pentecost here. Again, this Jewish exegetical tradition is going to continue um, to have things that the fire, the fire was like the word of God divided into 70 languages. Okay, that's an odd thing to tie in again. But why 70 languages? Why 70 languages? Well, the Jewish interpreters of this text are clearly drawing a parallel between Sinai and what other event? Where do the languages come from in the Old Testament? Babel. Babel. And what else, is, what else are we going to find in the latter half of Acts chapter 2 when we're going to go through this tonight? We're going to find tongues. We're going to find a redemption of Babel. And so Jewish interpreters for a long time have connected Sinai, Babel. You come to Luke at Pentecost, and what do we find? Sinai and Babel are connected once again. Exodus 24, 15 through 18. What you're going to see here, and it depends on the translation, but particularly in the Septuagint, the phrase as of fire that we see in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 3, is possibly coming right here from this Exodus 24, 15 through 18 passage. So one of the individuals, again, in Jewish history to comment on this is Philo. Now, what does Philo have to say in his commentary on the Decalogue? He says this, from the midst of the fire that streamed from heaven as a, quote, voice being like a flame that became a dialect in the language familiar to the audience, which caused amazement. Very similar to Acts chapter 2. What do we see here? Tongues. 
wow, what is happening over there at Pentecost? This is an unusual event. And guess what it causes amongst all the hearers at the event of Pentecost? They're amazed. They're confused. What is happening? Once again, I think Luke is being conscientious of some history that is happening and surrounded and built up around the Sinai event and is intentionally drawing parallels between Pentecost and what happened to Israel at Sinai. Now, there are two instances in the Old Testament where tongues of fire are mentioned, one of which is in Isaiah chapter 30, 27 through 30. So at the beginning of this Isaiah 30, 27 passage, Isaiah is looking at where Israel is currently and makes clear allusion back to the Exodus and to the Sinai event. And this is one of the places where we get a tongues of fire reference in the Old Testament. So what's happening here? Let's again back out and think about this narrative. Israel goes through an Exodus and they go to a temple experience with God. In the New Testament, Jesus leads, as a greater Moses, a people into a new exodus from bondage to sin and to Satan. But there has to be this Sinai temple event. And so similarly, what we get here is uh, Isaiah calling for these type of things. Um, if you translate where breath is as spirit, there might be even a closer tie. I wouldn't speak on that dogmatically. Um, but Isaiah refers once again to the mountain of the Lord. And this is once again an eschatological painting of the Sinai event as a temple. Okay? Extra biblical Jewish literature in uh, First Enoch. This is not something that we have canonically. But it looks to this tongues of fire theme and connects it to the heavenly temple. In First Enoch, um, it says this. Um, and the vision was shown to me. Behold, in the vision invited me and a mist summoned me and the course of the stars and lightning sped and hastened me and the winds in the vision caused me to fly and I lifted upward and bore me into heaven and I went in till I drew nigh to a wall which is built of crystal and surrounded by tongues of fire and it began to affright me and I went into the tongues of fire and drew nigh to a large house which was built of crystals. Obviously, First Enoch is not canonical. This is not something that we're going to say that Enoch actually had a vision into heaven. But what it does do is it establishes once again that this tongues of fire language is connected to the heavenly temple. And so as Luke writes something that is canonical, this is one of those other lines, one of those other just dots in this portrait where we're trying to say, Luke is seeing the heavenly temple with Jesus as our great high priest is now descending among his people. 
couple other connections here we see uh, in Ezekiel 1, 4 and, uh, 1 and 4, and then 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. These are both temple experiences. One, where Ezekiel is caught up into heaven, and then in 2 Chronicles, where God's presence is going to fill the temple. And what do we see there? We see wind and we see fire. These are two queer markers throughout the Old Testament that God's presence really has come to fill a place. So Ezekiel's caught up, and guess what he sees? Fire coming out from the temple. Second Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord was filled in the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord, because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces on the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, Fantastic. So we've established wind and fire. Great. Thanks, Sam. I get it. There's plenty of wind and fire happening in the Bible. Great. So what happens after wind and fire in Acts chapter 2 in those first four verses? We get the divided tongues of fire resting on each of them. And then in verse 4, what happens? Finally, the Holy Spirit comes and fills this place. What happens in the Old Testament after Moses comes down off the mountain and the tabernacle is finally established? What happens there? The Spirit comes and rests upon the 70 elders. Uh, Numbers 11, 24 through 30. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Moses, it's kind of an informal prophecy, if we could look at it that way. But Moses is like, one day, stop being jealous for my sake. Everyone in the people of God is finally going to have this awesome experience. Stop trying to limit it to just these few people. And when we get to Pentecost, what do we see? At least the apostles, but I would say most likely everyone there is receiving the Spirit. Other parallels. Uh, Exodus 32, 25 through 29, and then Acts 2, 37 and 41. Be ready. Notice the difference here is that in the Old Testament... We have issues, and then Jesus is redeeming these issues in the New Testament. Exodus 32. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And 
all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Okay, very good. So Moses goes up the mountain, and Israel is perfectly obedient at the foot of the mountain, and everything goes great, right? No, of course not. Uh, I don't know what happened. The gold went into the oven, and uh, out came this calf, and I guess we started worshiping it. I have no idea what happened there, Moses, right? Uh, of course, these, it does not go well for Israel at the foot of the mountain. And this causes a divide. Moses is going to say, are you on the Lord's side or are you not? And 3,000 people lose their lives as a result. When we come to the New Testament, what does Luke make sure to emphasize about the Pentecost event? Acts 2, 37 and 41. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. So instead of being pierced with a sword and dying as a result of their idolatrous rebellion in the Old Testament, 3,000 people died. 3,000 people were pierced to the heart with the word of God and were redeemed. They became true followers of the Lord Jesus. And so where there was idolatry and rebellion in the Old Testament, Jesus is reconstituting a true Israel that will choose to be on the right side. They will choose to be followers of the Lord Jesus. So as I promise that's the most paralleling I'll probably ever do for you guys. That's our biblical theology. What am I arguing here? Let's zoom out for a moment. Sinai was a true temple, but it had many untrue Israelites and little to no presence of the nations at Sinai, right? This was legitimately a meeting place of God and Moses on that mountain. But it wasn't perfect. We had a lot of idolatry happening at the foot of the mountain. It was pretty much just one nation. But when we come to Pentecost, what are we going to see? The church is, as well, a true temple, but it is also filled with true <coughs> Israelites who want to worship Jesus among or, or uh, above everything else. What are some applications we can take away from this? When you interpret this uh, Psalm 84 through this light, I cannot imagine a psalm that would impact your view of the church more than this verse right here, Psalm 84.10. If you understand that the temple now is the church. God's presence is here. I would rather spend one day with God's people than anywhere else on this globe. Because when I'm with you guys, I am experiencing God's presence among his people. I don't have to go to Jerusalem and go up a mountain to finally meet with God. I get together with two or three brothers, pray and worship God, and I get to experience his presence, and that is better than being anywhere else in the entire world. The church is faulty, right? There are a lot of problems in the church today. 
But God is in that mess. There are a lot of things that go wrong. No church is perfect. If, if that has ever been highlighted in an era, the deconstruction movement has made sure that we know that the church is faulty. But don't give up on the church for the simple reason that Jesus' presence is united with the people that fill his church. And so the title of tonight's lesson is Day One in His Courts because, you know, this is where the church is starting, if you will. But man, I would rather spend one day in the presence of God's people with their faults, with their warts, with their irritations and eccentricities that are bound to get on your nerves at some point. But this is the place where we come to know the Lord Jesus among his people. Yes, Chloe. Correct. This could be restricted to the apostles. Some people take it that way that the apostles are the all here. I would look back to the 120 in that upper room. I would say that we've kind of moved scenes, yes, but it's still the same conglomeration of people, whatever that means. But yes, I would say it is all legitimate followers of Jesus in that place. Yes. Very good. All right. Number two, second application here. What comes from Sinai? What comes down from Sinai? Somebody shout it out. Or what does Moses throw on the ground? Ten Commandments, right? The law comes from Sinai. And it turns out that humans have an incredibly natural and good propensity at doing anything and everything but what the law would tell you to do. And so something greater came down from the mountain that Jesus ascended. It wasn't the law that came down this time. It was the spirit indwelling every believer. And though the law was holy and it was good and it was the true revelation of what God had for humanity, humans were not going to complete it. But now in this new era of redemption, the spirit fills each and every one of us. The law is now written on our hearts, as Paul would say, so that we can engage in joyful service to God. It's not a matter of external conformity that has no internal uh, obedience or joy to it, but now Christ has poured out his spirit on his people and we are able to fulfill the law in a much greater way. And so what comes down from heaven at Sinai is even greater than what came down to Moses and through Moses to the people at Sinai. Um, we are now able to, in a much more full way, able to walk in the Spirit, right? Because this is something that has come to indwell every one of us. And this is, this is incredibly practical. You are able to love the annoying client because of what happened at Pentecost. You are able to care for abandoned children. You're able to live modestly and give to others with joy. You're willing to suffer for standing for truth in an era that rejects wholeheartedly the Christian social ethic because Christ has poured out his spirit on his people 
and you are able to not just do this begrudgingly, but suffer joyfully, as we're going to see the apostles do here in just a short time. They are going to go through the ringer, so to speak, and yet be able to walk through that in a way that is incredibly excited just at the opportunity to suffer for God. And how does that happen? That happens right here, right here in Acts 2, because the Spirit is poured out on these people. We're able to overcome anxiety and depression because we are connected to that true temple which resides in heaven, which is Jesus himself. You think about biblical counseling, and one of the principles if you're in biblical counseling circles is you want to give hope to somebody. We want to give them hope. We want, yes, you can overcome pornography. Yes, you can overcome depression. You can overcome that guilt that is pulling you back. Fantastic. Where does that hope come from? It comes from right here. If you believe the gospel and you receive Christ and he pours the spirit into your heart, this is the way out. This is the way out of all the sins that are pulling you down and pulling you back to that old life. Our hope is grounded in nothing less than Jesus and his reign through the Holy Spirit. Psalm 43, 3 through 5. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead you. Let them bring you to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him, my salvation and my God. Great. The reason I chose this text, I could, you know, you can turn to You can do one of these where you open your Bible and throw a dart at it and probably find a verse about joy, especially if you're John Piper. But what I picked this passage for particularly is what is the the psalmist saying here? He's using language about the altar, about going up God's holy hill. And it's in the context of the temple that David is saying, lead me by your truth. I am overjoyed to be in your presence, God. That is what's going to be able, that's what's going to empower me to be able to walk in a different way, to walk in truth. And that is Old Testament, sure, but it is the same principle. When we're in the presence of God and God's people, that is where the word is truly proclaimed That is how we're going to live a quiet and peaceable life. And that is how we're not going to just get the word done, get these things done just out of drudgery. But what does the psalmist say? Then he has joy doing it because he has ascended the mountain of God. Very good. So, first point, we're together in God's presence. That's fantastic. We get to enjoy this moment in God's presence because the heavenly temple has come to earth. It has been dispersed over his people. But that's not the end of what Luke's going to argue for, I think, in these first 13 verses. Let's look at verses 5 through 13, Acts chapter 2, 5 through 13, and see what other biblical story I think he tries to you ever, you ever go to Menards and they put in different paint samples and then they put it on that shaker thing? I think that's kind of what I think of when I see what Luke is doing here. He's mixing in a little bit of Sinai, a little bit of Babel, a little bit of just old temple, te- 
Old Testament temple imagery in general and coming out with this beautiful tapestry for what we're seeing here at Pentecost. Uh, verse 5 through 13. Now there were dwelling Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galatians? Now it is that we hear each of us in his own native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and Abilia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to uh, Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, uh, Cretans and Peridians. We hear them telling in our own language and the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocked, saying, They are filled with new wine. Props to Zach for being willing to read some of the toughest words in Acts. Right? <laughs> Perfect. And I, you know, Josh is teaching next week, but man, I. My favorite verse in Acts, maybe right there in verse 14. I just don't get to get to it. But. Um, so what do we have happening here in chapter uh, 2, verses 5 through 13? We're going to shift back into biblical theology mode. What's the storyline of Scripture? That's the definition of biblical theology, if you would. Let's establish a couple connections, and then I want to apply what I think Luke is attempting to draw out here. So what do we have happening in Acts? We have tongues. We have languages, okay? What else do we have? We have a whole lot of nations represented. Zach was kind enough to read off from east all the way to Rome, basically. All the nations that Luke wants to highlight for us here. So we have tongues, which are indicative of numerous nations. And guess what else we have? We have confusion. What in the world is happening right now? And if we're talking in terms of the Greek translation of the Old Testament... That word for confusion is the exact same word of what happened when the languages were confused at Babel. Okay. This is all going to harken back to Genesis chapter 10, where there are 70 nations, a table of 70 nations described. Now, Luke does not give us 70 nations. He gives us a condensed version, but he gives us a table of nations. Why? Genesis 10, Genesis 11... Genesis 11 is Babel. He's clearly drawing in the nations into this story about the temple. So we're going to unpack what that means. But somehow, we're getting a true temple and the nations combined. And we're going to see how Luke is unpacking something beautiful about what God is doing in humanity. But let's go back to Babel first. Genesis 11, 4 through 8. Let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not 
So this is God's judgment on this people. They are disobeying God. They are prideful. And they are engaging in false worship. And we can unpack that a little bit into each constituent element. What are they disobeying? They're disobeying the Genesis mandate. What does God tell Adam to do? Stay right here and huddle up with these people and don't go anywhere? No. He says, reproduce, fill the whole earth with image bearers that worship me. Expand the temple to the ends of the earth, if you ask me. But that's not in Genesis. That's my interpretation. He's wanting them to spread out over the globe, not to stay concentrated. And what did humans decide to do? Stay concentrated in one particular place. What are they trying to do there? They're prideful. They're attempting to make a name for themselves. The people of Babel, we want to make a great name for ourselves. And what are we going to see when we come to Genesis 12, when he calls Abraham? He says, I'm going to make a great name out of you, Abraham. And it's kind of a, no, we're not making a great name the way you think you're making a great name, humanity. I'm going to call someone to myself, and he's going to have a great name because I'm going to bless him with it. And they're engaging in false worship. They didn't build pyramids to the sky just for the fun of it. They didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I want to make a stair-stepping structure to heaven. This was part of their religious experience. It's, it's, you know, obviously we're looking back thousands of years into Mesopotamian history, but this may very well have been viewed as a gateway for the gods. Gods can go up these steps like a ziggurat. If you've seen pictures of a ziggurat, they're kind of stair-stepping, and they go up to heaven, and then they can come down from heaven. This is a place where the gods can refuel and get a bite to eat. It's the gods' grocery store or gas station. I don't know. But this is where they're stopping. So what do we have here? We have disobedience to God's mandate. We have pride as they want to make a great name for themselves. And we have a false temple. We have a false temple. They are not worshiping the one true God. They are worshiping the gods of their own imaginations here. And so what does God do? God descends. God descends. And God descends in judgment, which also happens to be the same word for what he does at Sinai. God descends on Sinai. But ironically where he's descending in a more positive way at Sinai, God is descending in judgment here at Babel. And so Babel then is portrayed as a false temple. But guess what it does have a lot of? The nations. This is literally where the nations begin. So it's a false temple, but there's a lot of the nations. When we come to Acts then, what do we have? Think about it in context of Sinai. The church is a true temple of restored Israel. But this true restored Israel is not just a monolithic people group. Now, this true restored Israel is comprised of all the nations. So we finally have arrived at a place in God's redemptive history where it's true worship of God. God is truly meeting with man and it is comprised of all of humanity. God is finally fulfilling this Abrahamic blessing, this covenant where he says, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. This is coming as a result of Jesus' work. Now for some application. One of the things I find amazing about this right here is that Babel is not exactly reversed. However, Babel is, in fact, redeemed. Reversal would mean we're back to one language, 
And that's not what we, what we see happen here. Of course, they can understand each other, but the miracle isn't that well, now all the church speaks one language. You know, you're anywhere else in the world, you speak whatever. But when you come into the church and get saved, you have the angelic tongue. No, we, we, the church has spoken many different languages throughout all of history. Why did God not choose just to... Okay, now it's one language again. He's, I'm, gonna, I'm arguing here that God is not reversing Babel. He is redeeming Babel. Culture tells us that diversity is inherently good. I almost titled this lesson Pentecost, God's DEI initiative. And then I, I thought that might be a little too provocative. But what is God doing here? God is God is building a new humanity that is unified in a transcendent unity that still maintains its diversity. Uh, Revelation 7, 4 and 9. Revelation 7, 4 and 9. Oh, sorry. Oh, you're all good. Um, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. After this, I looked. Here's one of many reasons why the gospel is so amazing, is that we become a family with people who are entirely different from you on every imaginable secular plane or intersection. We become a family with people who look nothing like us because we are worshiping the one true king. And so we ought to demand unity in our worship of King Jesus not in ethno-linguistic matters. Okay? We don't need to be the same ethnicity. We don't need to speak the same language. But we don't compromise on worship of the one true king. Someone comes in and says, you know what? I think we can worship Allah right alongside Jesus or you know, a Mormon and some of those teachings that come with that. And that's where we're going to say, no, we, we really need to push back here. The gospel is central. It is our unity that is being celebrated. How is it that all of these different people come together? It's because there is a unity in Jesus. And so we should celebrate our unity in King Jesus far more than these ethno-linguistic differences. I think where culture has pushed back to the churches, now there's this token diversity where we want to look for people that look different and be like, oh, oh, okay, this person looks different and this person looks different. we got to showcase that we have different people. And what I would much rather be a part of a church is that is showcasing we worship King Jesus and anyone and everyone is welcome here so long as we are under the one banner of King Jesus. Okay, Celebrate unity. And yet respect that Jesus has invited people from different ethno-linguistic families. Number two, this is just like God <laughs> to do this here at, at Pentecost. To redeem Babel is an amazing work of God because something that was God's judgment has become now a means of salvation. Where the languages were God's descending in judgment 
now God is using his plan of all of these nations to become part of God's plan for how to save the world. For now, the nations are represented here in Jerusalem, but these nations aren't going to stay just planted in Jerusalem. God's going to use persecution and many other means, but what's going to happen when you have a bunch of different people that have a bunch of different home countries? They're going to scatter back to their people. And so part of God's wonderful plan here is, yes, this was in judgment when we're in Genesis, but God's mercy is running through all of this. God is going to save the world because there are many nations and the nations are going to take the gospel back to each people group. And so this right here fulfills the Genesis mandate, which was forgotten at Babel. The Great Commission is the ultimate consummation of Adam's image bearers going to fill the entire globe. And so while we think something might be going wrong, whether it's in scripture or in our life, God's discipline is working for our good as Christians. And honestly, things might not always look like it's going for our good. You lose a job. Um, you lose a family member, and, and even more poignantly, you lose a child, right? That is perhaps the pinnacle of the most unnatural things. And we're a little bit before that phase of life, but I think it would be naive to think that there aren't numerous in this room who will experience that kind of pain. How are we going to think of God when the most tragic things in life happen? If we divorce God's discipline and his goodness, his mercy, it's going to be really tough sledding when we try to understand the nature of God. We have to remember that what God is sovereignly orchestrating is for our good. Yes, sir. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. That's the that. Amen. God is not a mean cosmic Santa Claus doling out mean gifts, right? He is good. He is working for your ultimate good. Number three, Babel conglomerated to form a great name for God? No. Babel was concerned about me. And when we get to Pentecost, now we have a people spreading all over the globe with the fame of Jesus as their end. And so often, it is so easy to fall into the same trap that has been since Mesopotamia. We want to make a great name for ourselves. And even in making a great name for Jesus, we like to kind of ride that ship upward. We want to make a great name for ourselves and also make a great name for Jesus. That's not how it works. You don't hear much about any of the other apostles, right? But they're out there. They're sharing the gospel. Why? Because they're not the point of the story. The fame of Jesus that's the point of the story. And so, I mean, I say this truly to myself more than to any of you first. It is an effort to always be undercutting my ego, my name, my success, my popularity, my following, and replace that, replace that, replace that, replace that with Jesus' following, Jesus' fame, love of Jesus, popularity of Jesus. 
That is hard because it grates against the very fabric of our depraved self, where we come from. We want to be famous. We want to be known. We want to be liked by people. Now, we're a part of a group of people. You can take the pressure off yourself. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be well-known. You don't have to be well-liked. Jesus is the one who is meant to be known. Fourth, with people going all over the globe, uh, we, we kind of have a polemic here, I think, from, from Luke. The king of Israel rules over the world, not Caesar. There are similar lists to this in the Roman world where you have lists of the tables of nations. Rome has conquered and Rome is ruling over the world. And what do the prophets say? That salvation is going to come from Israel to the nations. This is instructive. Luke may very well be saying Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. What were individuals persecuted for? They would not take a pinch and offer it to Caesar and say, what? Caesar is Lord. No, and, and what did Christians die on the confession of? Jesus is Lord. And so when we consider uh, political, um, political topics and such, we must remember that it is no human representative that is ultimately king of the world. And any time that there instructives go against our higher authority we are bound to obey Jesus because whether it's from north or south or east or west Jesus is reigning over the nations from his heavenly throne our posture should certainly be submissive to governments when they align with what Jesus would have but are we to obey God or men we're going to see that in just a moment Why should we obey God rather than men? Because Jesus is king. He has ascended. He is sitting on the throne and he is reigning. And Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And so when we think about different political topics, this is what we're seeing in the ascension is that Jesus is seated on his throne. And then fifth, beloved, we ought to be going to the nations. It's as simple as that. There's a lot of complex things that you can try to draw out of this text, but we clearly see that the nations are involved and that there is a missiological or mission-oriented emphasis here in the text. We are not going for the fame of our own name, but for the name of King Jesus and his glory. We are to obey the Genesis mandate and reproduce image bearers as we are restored into the image of Jesus Christ all across the globe. We are to build an international temple where God's presence is over the whole globe. And I say build that temple. Isn't that interesting that Paul would pick up on some of that language? He said, don't destroy the temple of God when he refers to hurting other people. That's an interesting thing. We should build people up. We should build up these stones in the temple of God. Don't tear down the temple of God. God opposes people who tear down the temple. So go out there. Witness to people. Share the gospel with people. Create new stones in this temple, if you would. And don't take your chisel to other ones that you've known for a long time. Both of these need to be nourished and growing up into Jesus. And then finally, as we go, if we truly have a missiological emphasis... Uh, verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, they're full of wine, right? These are cynical people. They're, nothing miraculous is happening here. 
I'm going to chalk this one up to having too much to drink at nine in the morning. They're, they're cynics. They're not going to recognize the working of God. And that's going to happen in our experiences too. You can present someone with not only the best intellectual evidence, you can present them with the best familial experience in a group. You can present them with everything. And they still walk away as cynics who reject Jesus. However, what happens to these cynics 40-some verses or 30-some verses later? This is the same multitude who's going to be cut to the heart and who come to Jesus. And so instead of 3,000 killed for idolatry, 3,000 are going to come to life by the word and the spirit. So, yeah, you're going to run across cynics. There's also hope when you run across cynics. People are mean. It's how it goes. But even the meanest of people, even the most uh, repugnant in their responses can be won to Jesus because Jesus is the one who has to draw people. Not one person has ever been won on purely the grounds of the best argument ever. Jesus has to be the one to draw people. The age of life, so to speak, has dawned. And now we can call others to live. You need to live in that light. We call other people to live in that light. We're like a little, oh, there's a parable about this. We're like a little seed growing up, a plant growing up in the light of this new age. And we're calling other people to live in this as well. There is hope that hard resisting hearts can be cut because the spirit is still moving. So as we go, teach them to love Jesus and to love his people. Say, love Jesus, but you don't have to love his people. That's a pretty important point of initial discipleship. You love Jesus, now love the people that he has chosen to die for. The king will return for his kingdom of people, and he will come again. So, come, Lord Jesus. Our summary for tonight. Combining temple backgrounds of Sinai and Babel, Luke reveals that with the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, the eschatological or end-time temple has come down from heaven. Jesus went up and his temple has come down. This end times temple is not made of stones, but of people, of you. This people forms a new humanity under King Jesus that is unified while maintaining God-glorifying distinctives. God's judgment of the nations is precisely the means by which his salvation will occur. And people from every tribe and tongue and nation will worship the king forever. Okay? All right. Um, Josh, you want to close us in prayer? Thank you. Dear Lord, Father, I pray that you would be with all of us tonight as we go out from here and go to various um, our various homes and um, continue on into um, our Sunday um, worship service and, and go on into a new week. Lord, I pray that you would help us to rejoice in what you did at Pentecost, to um, see your work, to, um, to read over this passage again, and to, um, to go out and make disciples, to, to continue on in this um, explosion of um, 
gospel of this um, set, starting to actually set up the, the new kingdom that um, we didn't see that at Bible, we didn't see that at, Pine, or at um, uh, Sinai, but now we see, um, we see things starting to culminate and starting to come to its um, final end or final kingdom where we will live with you forever. So God, I pray we would look forward to that day and that we would <clears throat> bring along as many as we can, that we would trust you sharing the gospel for, as Sam reminded us, it is only your work that can change the sinful heart of man to love you. So God, I pray we would trust in you that we would um, pray for the people we share the gospel with, for the people that we interact with, and that you would change their hearts, mm -hmm. that you would um, use us as your tools, um, that you would use your church um, as you have taught us to bring people to your word, bring people to knowledge of sin and of the wonderful Savior that you are. Mm -hmm. So God, I pray that you would help us to be emboldened um, in our own faith, to be um, reminded of how exciting um, you are and how exciting it is to be a part of what you have called us to be. And I pray we go out and make many disciples. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.